we're going to continue one more week of grace, and hopefully it's helpful for you guys. Again, all this stuff is coming from Joseph Prince's book called Destined to Reign. I was waiting to see if y'all would say it, but you didn't. Destined to Reign, so it's, it really has been done, doing such a great thing in my heart. I hope if you're, if you're digging it, you go get the book and dig into it as well. Um, I want to highlight the last few weeks. Can y'all remember, what's a few things that have stuck out to you? Any revelations or things where you're like, wow, I didn't catch that fully? Anybody? Okay, from two weeks ago, we talked about the gift of righteousness. Um, righteousness before God, it's a gift. We are called to reign as kings. And the keys to be able to reign in your life as a king is to accept, to receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. Okay? Those are the two keys. Um, okay. okay, what is theirs? I mean, all right. Amen. Amen. I love that. Amen. Righteousness. That's right. That's right. Okay, so I'm going to give you my list. Number one on my list from two weeks ago, the gift of righteousness. Your righteousness before God is a gift from Jesus. That's it. You can't do anything to be righteous in front of God except to receive the free gift. Amen? The second thing is that Jesus... He sat down. The high priest in the Old Testament never sat down, but Jesus goes up to heaven as the high priest, the once and for all high priest, and he's finished. And he sits his booty down on the throne, and then he makes you sit down with him because there's literally nothing else you can do to earn your righteousness before God. Somebody say amen. 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 The third thing from two weeks ago, Satan has been what? disarmed. Amen. What was Satan's weapon? The law, the handwriting requirements. God did not give Satan a weapon. Satan grabbed the weapon himself and he used the law because he knew no man could live up to it. And so he began to accuse you and me of our sins. And on the cross, God disarmed Satan from his weapon. He can no longer come and accuse you. Amen. Everybody say amen at the same time together out loud from your voice. One, two, three. Hey, all right. Did everybody do it? I'll get you if you didn't. Okay, last week we talked about a few more things. Um, We talked about King David. He said the definition of blessedness. You guys remember? David said a blessed man is somebody whose sins are not imputed against them. You remember that? And so... That means that your sins will never be imputed to, to you because they're all imputed towards Jesus on the cross, okay? You will never have to pay for your sins because Jesus already paid for all of your sins, amen? Okay, the second thing we talked about is God's restless sword of judgment. In the Garden of Adam and Eve, the Garden of Eden, <laughs> um, when they fell, They were kicked out of the garden. God posted an angel with the flaming sword of judgment to block the way to the tree of life. We could no longer partake of the tree of life because of our sin. And when Jesus hung on the cross for us, God's restless sword of judgment was shoved into his bosom. Jesus fully took on the brunt of that judgment. All of God's harsh wrath and judgment towards sin was fully and completely satisfied in the body of Christ. 
And so Jesus has satisfied that judgment, and he has therefore opened the way once again for you to partake of the tree of life. Amen? The cross of Jesus has become the tree of life. The last thing is what Sharon said. The Holy Spirit came. Jesus said the Holy Spirit comes to convict the world of sin. But it's not multiple sins. It's one singular sin, which is the sin of not believing in Jesus. And then Jesus also says that he sends the Holy Spirit to you because Jesus has gone up to the Father. And so now the Holy Spirit comes to you to convict you only of your righteousness. So that when you blow it and when you sin and you let junk in your life and you think, oh, I can't be with God. I can't be close to him anymore. i got to distance myself from God. The Holy Spirit comes to convict you of your righteousness. No, you don't have to be separated from God. You are the righteousness of Christ in Jesus. God looks at you today as fully righteous, holy, accepted, and pleasing before his sight. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. So today we want to talk about a few more things. Today we're going to continue discussing this. Um, we're going to talk about the gift of no condemnation, and we're going to talk about some typologies of how Jesus was symbolized in the Old Testament and what it means for us. So everybody knows that the devil, he's a smart cookie. He stays laser focused on what his goal is, what his purpose is. Jesus said that the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So Satan is a thief, but is his name thief? No. Satan comes to kill. Is his name murderer? Satan comes to destroy. Is his name destroyer? No. What is his name? Satan. Yeah, very good. I know. You got that one. Okay? Satan's name is Satan. But in the Old Testament, in Hebrew, the word means accuser. Okay? Everybody say accuser. Satan comes to do one thing in your life. He comes to accuse you and bring condemnation against you because of your sins. That's his primary laser focus. That's why he armed himself with the law of God because he knew you could never live up to it. And so every time he comes around your life, he's going to prosecute you like a lawyer does. In the court of law, a prosecutor is not going to come and be like, oh my gosh, Grant is the best guy. He does all these great things and blah, blah, blah. And he had this one little thing that they kind of messed up on, I think y'all should convict him. No, the prosecutor comes to rip you to shreds, right? They're going to air out all of your dirty laundry, every wrong thought you've ever had, every bad thing you've ever done. That's what a prosecutor does. And the enemy, Satan, he is your accuser, and he comes only to accuse you, okay? But, hallelujah, God has taken his weapon away from him. So he comes to kill uh, to bring condemnation. But Jesus tells us that we need to kill condemnation in our own lives. So here's the thought I want us to grab today. Jesus wants us to eradicate condemnation from our lives. Everybody say it with me. Eradicate condemnation from our lives. That's what Jesus wants us to do. That's what he died for. So that you could eradicate condemnation. Jesus has eradicated condemnation of you. Satan keeps on coming after you to bring condemnation. But Jesus wants you to eradicate condemnation from your life. Holy Spirit wants you to eradicate condemnation from your life. Okay? So, um, Isaiah chapter 54. It says that no weapon formed against you shall prosper. What's the weapon the devil uses? We learned that it's the law. And the devil uses the law to condemn believers and remind them that they've fallen short. But the word declares, get this, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. 
What is the weapon against you? The accusation of your shortcoming, okay? The Bible says, no weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn. Amen? That's what it says. No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue that rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn. So what's that look like? So the accuser rises up, and his weapon is his voice of accusing you of all the places that you have failed. So then you are called by God to rise up, and you condemn what he's saying to you. You're such a loser. You're such a sinner. You're such a terrible person, whatever. No, 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 no. I'm going to eradicate your condemnation out of my life because the Holy Spirit convicts me that I am righteous. I am the righteousness of Christ. When God looks at me, he sees something holy, pleasing, and beautiful. He loves me just how I am because Jesus paid for all my sins. Amen? So God wants us to eradicate condemnation. John 8 Verse 10 through 11. This is the story of the adulterous woman. Okay? So Jesus has just gone out to the Mount of Olives. He slept there all night. Now he's come back in town to Jerusalem to the temple. He's in the temple early in the morning, and here's the setting. I don't know if he's teaching or what he's doing, but he's in the temple, and all of a sudden there's a ruckus coming through the doors. All these Pharisees, all these teachers coming up, and they're all yelling and cheering. They've got something in the middle. Kind of like Ashley's house last night where cops was happening in her backyard, apparently. Um, so they've, they've wrangled somebody, and they're dragging them over to Jesus. And the Pharisees are thinking, this is our, cho- this is our chance. We're going to catch Jesus. Because either he has to uphold the law, and we get to do something that we like to do, which is condemn people and destroy this woman for her terrible sin, or he's going to go against the law, and we can kill him. Yeah! So the Pharisees are pumped. This is their big moment. So they bring this one person who's been committing adultery. And who knows it takes more than one person to commit adultery. Where's the, where's the guy? Joseph suggests that the guy was one of them, one of the Pharisees maybe. They've been planning this thing. They've been getting it ready to come against Jesus. I don't know. But there's this commotion. And all the people in the temple are now staring, condemning, judging eyes at this woman who probably has no clothes on. She's probably wrapped up in a sheet. She's been caught in the act. And judgment and death glares going at this woman. And so they look at Jesus. What are you going to do? The law of Moses, who you say you like, says that we should kill her right now. Dun, dun, dun. And so what's Jesus do? Jesus, he bends down. Okay. Now I heard it growing up that Jesus bends down and begins to draw on the ground and people told me it was the sand, that he was drawing in the dirt, you know, drawing a picture, nice flowers. I don't know what he's drawing. But, but Joseph Prince points out he's in the temple. The temple, everything was hewn stone, okay? So this is cool. So the floor of the temple is like the most precisely cut stone you could imagine. We've been there. Even today, they have these giant boulders, stones that were hewn cut. They're like perfectly smooth. They're amazing. The size of buses, school buses today, it would fill the whole room, one piece of rock. And they put them together like Legos so tightly that you cannot even put a piece of paper between two stones. Still today, thousands of years later, right? So that's, that's what Jesus is standing on. 
these stones that make this beautiful floor. And so Jesus bends down. And when he bends down, where do everybody's eyes go? Obviously, they go to Jesus. But now Jesus is writing on stone. When's another time in history that a deity writes on stone? The handwritten requirements on the Ten Commandments, the two stone tablets. And so Jesus bends down, and I don't know what he's doing, but he's using his finger and he's writing on stone like some other time that happened in history. Maybe he's tracing out all of the Ten Commandments on the ground. And so he finishes writing. And when he finally finishes, he rises up and he says, okay, you're right. That's what the law says. So whoever doesn't have sin, go ahead and throw the first stone. Right? And so the oldest first begin to drop their rocks and silently walk away. Their grand master plan has failed. And they walk away sad that they didn't get to kill somebody. <laughs> and then the young ones begin to drop their rocks, silently walk away. And the scene is over. It's just poof, dissipated. And there's Jesus and this woman. And Jesus looks over to her. The only one who was able to cast judgment in that moment, he chose grace over judgment. And so in that moment, he looks over at this woman and he says, woman, where are your accusers? And she looks up and she says, I don't know, they're all gone. And Jesus says, well, then neither do I condemn you. Amen. And then after he says, I give you the gift of no condemnation. Then he says, go and sin no more. Okay? So get this. Jesus first gave the gift of no condemnation to this wicked sinner who was caught in the act. And after the gift has been given, then Jesus says, go and sin no more. And a lot of times in the church, we flip it around. We say, hey, come to church. Come, you dirty people. Come on in and uh, get right, and then you won't be condemned. Come and don't sin any longer, and you won't have condemnation in your life. But that is not Jesus. Say amen. amen. Jesus gave the gift of no condemnation first. Amen? So good. It'd be like telling my kids, hey, guys, it's almost time to take a shower. Be sure to go take a shower first before you get in the shower. Like, no, it makes no sense. Jesus says, come to me when you're messy and dirty and covered in grossness, and I will wash you. I'm the one to wash you. So come, I give you the gift of no condemnation, and go sin no more. Amen? So, gosh, I love that. Eradicate condemnation from your life. Jesus eradicated it for us. Satan still brings it against us. But we are supposed to now eradicate it out of our lives as well. If Jesus isn't condemning you, for crying out loud, don't let Satan condemn you anymore. Amen? Okay. Let's move on. Some other typologies of Jesus. Some symbolism of Jesus throughout the Bible. You see, God has always been showing us all along of Jesus. He's the one that makes payment for your sins. He is the gift of righteousness. There's nothing you can do to earn your righteousness. And so God's been showing us all along throughout the Bible about how he is the gift of righteousness. 
So let's look at this one. We talked before Easter about the sin offering. We talked about the Passover lamb and how Jesus was the Passover lamb. And we also talked about how at the Day of Atonement, they would bring two goats to, to the temple. And on one goat, they would put the sins of the nation and they would remove the sins of the nation as far as the east is from the west. And they would send that goat out into the desert. And then on the second goat, they would put the sins of the nation on the goat. They would kill the goat on behalf of the nation. And then the priest would take the blood of the lamb or the blood of the goat and take it into the Holy of Holies one day of year. And he would walk into the Holy of Holies and there was the Ark of the Covenant inside the Holy of Holies. And he would take the blood of the animal and he would splash it on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. Okay? So a couple things that Joseph points out that I love. And I'm going to show you a video that he made here in a second. Two beautiful things. When the offerer who is guilty of sin brings the offering to the priest to be inspected, the eyes of the priest are not looking at the offerer for sin. The eyes of the priest are looking at the offering to see if it's perfection. Okay? Then the offerer puts their hand on the animal, and the sins of the offerer go now into the animal. It receives the sins, symbolically, of the person. And, vice versa, the righteousness of the animal is, comes into the offerer. Amen? Okay, so, where's the iPad? There it is. We're going to turn the lights down. We're going to show you a quick movie in one quick second. Hopefully it's not too loud. Are you ready? Eli, you ready to show that video? Let's do it. Amen? Amen, amen. All right. I love that. So, that's the sin offering. The priest didn't inspect the offerer, but only the lamb. I love that video because it just, it just drills it into your brain forever. You're going to remember seeing your sin go into that lamb and the righteousness come into you. Amen? That's how God sees you. So God was teaching them thousands of years ago, this is how it works. It's the gift of righteousness that's given to you. There's nothing you can do to be right before God's eyes. So let's look at the burnt offering, all right? 
So you have the sin offering. There was no sweet aroma with the sin offering. Okay? Then you had the burnt offering. What was the burnt offering? Anybody? Say the word incense. Okay. So the burnt offering was incense, and it was a sweet aroma that went up before the Lord, and it attracted the Lord because it was so pleasing to him, okay? So the burnt offering was an offering of incense, a sweet-smelling aroma before the Lord, and when it went up, it pleased the Lord. The burnt offering is beautiful because while the sin offering speaks of Jesus taking your sins onto his body, the burnt offering speaks of the righteousness of Jesus being transferred to you at the cross, okay? When you read the book of Leviticus, of the five types of offering that were listed, the sin offering is the very last one that's listed. And the burnt offering is the very first one that's listed. And a lot of times we focus only on the sin offering. But the burnt offering was a beautiful thing because it was so sweet and well-pleasing to the Lord. So Jesus didn't only die to take your sins away, but he also died to make you sweet and well-pleasing to God. So when God pays attention to you, he loves to be close to you. Amen? Like a sweet aroma inside of him. The sweet aroma from the burnt offering speaks of Jesus' beauty, perfection, and loveliness to the Father. The sin offering speaks of your sins being transferred to Jesus, while the burnt offering speaks of Jesus' worthiness before God, his acceptance before God, his delight before his Father being transferred to you. And so today, God favors you in exactly the same way he favors his well-pleasing son. Amen? Okay, let's look at Jesus in the manna. So the Israelites come out of Israel, and they've come out, I'm sorry, they've come, they are Israel. They can't come out of Israel. Nowadays they can, but they couldn't back then. So they come out of the Red Sea. They're in the desert, and God begins to provide for them. And all of a sudden, manna, this miraculous, beautiful bread from heaven, comes and falls every morning. And it sustains them, gives them life. The Bible says that it was a sweet tasting, like honey. It tasted really good. It was light and fluffy, like cake. Okay? And it was this beautiful bread that nourished them fully. It gave them all the nutrients that they needed. This one food gave them all the nutrients all of the energy, all of the carbs, all of the proteins, everything that they need to survive and to live extremely, like in great health, this one bread from heaven had. David called it the angel's food, okay? So this is incredible bread. And because of this bread, they were sustained and they lived well in the desert for 40 years. Their feet never swelled, walking day in and day out. They never had any disease or illness of any kind. So this bread, this was life-sustaining bread. Some could, some could say bread of life, okay? Right? It's this amazing bread. But before too long, in the desert, the Israelites begin to grumble and complain at how bad this amazing angel's food really is, Okay? So they start to complain and cry about it. Jesus actually said, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors, they ate manna in the desert and they died. But if you eat of me, you will live forever. Okay? Next. We're going to talk about manna again in a second. When they began to complain... Okay? They began to complain in the desert... Oh, this manna is so terrible. I wish we were still back in slavery. 
This is awful. We hate this. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> okay? What happens? They begin to grumble and complain against God, and God removes his hand of protection from them in the desert. All of a sudden, serpents from all over the desert begin to show up in their camp. And now a couple million people are being overrun by snakes. Poisonous snakes who are coming in and biting them, and they're getting bitten, and they're dying. Okay? I drove over a snake this morning. It was going from Walmart to Arby's on, San, on a telephone road. I don't know why a snake was there, but I was like, hallelujah, praise God, kill that snake, right? I hate snakes. They're terrible. They are the cursed thing of the earth because of what happened in the Garden of Eden, okay? So snakes are coming out, and they're eating people. They're attacking people. People are dying, and God says, here's the solution. I want you to grab a pole and create a bronze sculpture of a snake and put it high on the pole, okay? Anytime somebody glances, they get bitten, they glance at the snake, they will be immediately, instantly healed. All of their sin will be taken away, their illness will be taken away, they will be healed and they will live just fine. The, the snake was a typology of Jesus on the cross, right? So then the question is, why in the world did God tell Moses to equate Jesus to a snake? Of all things, right? Okay? It's because of this. And, and a bronze snake of all things. The snake is the cursed one. Jesus was put on the pole and lifted high for all to see. And Jesus himself became the cursed one. Jesus took onto his body all the curses of all man's sins so that we could be right with God. So Jesus was portrayed as the cursed one in the desert. But he couldn't be a real snake lifted high. Why didn't Moses just put a real snake on a pole? Because its flesh would rot, okay? It's very important. Jesus couldn't be portrayed as flesh. It was important that he was portrayed in the likeness of sinful man. And so he was made as a bronze snake. Throughout the Bible, bronze speaks of God's judgment upon something, okay? And so Jesus, on the cross, has God's judgment laid upon him. He becomes the curse, and he receives all of, our, all of our punishment for our sins. Okay? Here's another typology, which I love. This is the last one for the day. And you can go ahead and put the, Eli, you put the picture of the ark. So the ark of the covenant Okay, this is so cool. So King David, he was known as a man after God's own heart, right? Have you ever thought about why God loved David so much? Why did God think, oh my gosh, this guy, he's just amazing. He's a man after my heart. I would do anything for him. Why did he think that about David? Some people say because David was an amazing worshiper. He's always worshiping. He wrote most of the Psalms, you know, amazing, amazing worshiper. Some people think, oh, he's a friend of God. Great friend of God. God loved to be with him. His heart was so good. But do you know there's other people in the Bible who are amazing worshipers and who are amazing friends of God? So why David, why was he considered a man after God's own heart? And Joseph suggests that this is the reason why, because of the Ark of the Covenant. In Psalms 132, David said this. He said, I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids. Slumber? 
Did I say slumber? Slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place of the mighty one of Jacob. So David says, I'm not going to go to sleep until I find the right place to exalt and honor God, to give him a resting place. Now, this was when David was in the desert wilderness, not desert, but he was in the wilderness. King Saul is on the throne, and Saul is hunting him down. The armies are coming after him. They could kill him at any minute. David doesn't know where his next meal comes from. David doesn't know where he's going to sleep tonight. David doesn't know if he could be killed in the next hour. He knows nothing, but the only thing on his mind is, I will not sleep until I find a resting place for the presence of the Lord. Okay? Why was that? Because for 20 years, King Saul had dumped the Ark of the Covenant in the forest. <laughs> it's called the wilderness of, of woods, I think is what it's called. Kiram Jiram, something like that. Okay? So King Saul did not have a value for the Ark of the Covenant. And he ditched it somewhere in the wilderness and it had been there for decades. And David, the only thing on his mind is I've got to get the covenant restored back to its right place. I'm going to do anything it takes to put that in its right place. Because David had an understanding and a revelation of Jesus in the covenant. Okay? What was his revelation? I love this. Okay, get ready. Because this, this was so good to my heart. It blew me away in a lot of different ways. Okay? So look at the picture of the, the Ark of the Covenant. I forget how big the ark was. It was big enough to put a whole staff into. Um, and we'll talk about what else was inside of it. But So you had a box on the bottom. You had a lid on top, golden angels between it. And in between the two angels were the, called the mercy seat. And it had poles that the priest would carry it place to place. They used to take it out into battle. And when the presence of the Lord showed up in battle, they just wipe everybody out. Right? They would keep it in the Holy of Holies. And, and once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. And there would be the Ark of the Covenant. And he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat between the two cherubim. Okay? So let's talk about how the Ark was created. Because it's a symbol of Christ. The box itself was created from acacia wood. And it was wrapped in gold, covered in gold, okay? Now, throughout the Bible, wood symbolizes humanity. In Israel, acacia wood was known as the incorruptible wood. So the acacia wood speaks to Jesus' incorruptible humanity. Now it's wrapped in gold. And throughout the whole Bible, when gold is talked about, it's talking about deity, so the box speaks of Jesus' 100% fully incorruptible humanity and at the same time fully God. Fully God, fully man. Okay? On top of the box was what was called the mercy seat. This is a solid gold slab. Okay? Solid gold slab. I'm guessing the ark was bigger than that because the like a six-foot rod's got to go inside of it, okay? So has anybody ever held a gold bullion? Genuinely curious. <laughs> I never have. <laughs> you know why? Because it's worth like a million dollars. One brick of gold is worth so much money. Now imagine a golden slab, like a giant piece of 
granite, you know, like several pieces of granite thick as the lid on top of the Ark of the Covenant. This thing is literally worth millions and millions and millions of dollars, okay? It was heated up. The gold was put together. It was beat into place so that it would make the proper shape to do the, the, the covering like it was supposed to. And on the edge of the slab is a crown all the way around it made of gold, okay? And then on top were the angels, and then the mercy seat was right between. And when the high priest would go in, they said that God would sit on the mercy seat and speak to the high priest from the mercy seat, okay? So this lid was unbelievably valuable, unbelievably important, unbelievably heavy, right? It was worth so much money, and it was for a very specific purpose, okay? So what was this golden slab covering up? God made it really clear. Nobody opened that box. Big deal. Open the box, get destroyed. And there's stories of people who opened the box and they were destroyed, okay? God was hiding something inside the box. He wasn't keeping relics. He was purposely hiding something from his view. What was inside the box? There were three things inside the box. The first thing inside the box were the two stone tablets with the finger writing of God, the handwritten requirements of the law, sitting inside the box. What do the stone tablets represent? They represent God's rebellion, I'm sorry, man's rebellion and man's complete inability to uphold the law. No man can do it. So it represents our rebellion against God. The second thing inside the box was Aaron's staff. There was a, like a, a rod that he held, the one that opened the Red Sea, all that crazy stuff. And so shortly into the uh, desert, the Israelites begin to grumble and complain. Why is Aaron in charge? We don't want him to be the high priest. We want this guy to be the high priest. This is ridiculous. So they come, and God says, here's what to do. Let's have a showdown. Take everybody's staffs who wants to be high priest. We'll throw it into the temple, and let's see what happens. They leave it overnight. Overnight, Aaron's staff... It grows branches, it grows leaves, it flowers, beautiful, beautiful flowers, and it produces fruit all overnight, showing God's anointing is upon this man, okay? So that's inside the Ark of the Covenant, but what does it speak to? It speaks to man's rebellion against God's anointed authority, okay? God puts it in the box. What's the third thing in the box? There's a golden pot of manna, the real deal, not spoiled, because it would spoil. Every new day, it would spoil. And this beautiful bread from heaven that they did nothing to receive. All they had to do was go and take it, okay, to keep them alive, to give them life. They had a golden pot of manna inside the Ark of the Covenant. The manna, again, speaks to man's rebellion against God's provision for them. So God hides all of man's rebellion in this box that represents Jesus. And he puts this unbelievably heavy, unbelievably expensive and precious slab on top of it, this lid on top of it that's crowned with a crown, a king's crown, and he puts the lid on top of it as if to say, I never want to see this stuff again. And then he takes the blood of the lamb every year, and he puts the blood on the mercy seat right on top of the slab as if to say, when I look at man's sins, I see nothing. 
I see nothing but Jesus. The king who is beaten to create a covering of our sins, who is scourged on the cross and who spilled his blood to provide a covering for your sins. Amen? So, the Ark of the Covenant, it was a shadow of Jesus, his person and his work. Because his blood, all of our sins have been cleansed. This is why it's so dangerous for anybody back in those days to lift the mercy seat to uncover the sins and rebellion that God had covered. The mercy seat was not to be lifted at any time. The consequences were severe. Nobody is supposed to even take a peek at the Ten Commandments. God doesn't want the law to be exposed because it represents our rebellion and it will only minister death and condemnation. Notice that the mercy seat is placed over the law. And this tells us that God's mercy triumphs over his judgment. God's grace is above God's law. God executes judgment because he's just, but his delight is not in judgment. His delight is in mercy and grace. And so... We shouldn't be lifting the mercy seat either. When the enemy comes to accuse you, which is what he's laser focused on, and he comes to say, you're a wretch. You screwed up. God can never accept you. If you begin to agree with those thoughts, in the essence, that's you removing the lid and looking in. And it's going to bring death and destruction into your life. There's all sorts of scientific studies This is another sermon for another day, but there's all sorts of studies that say your body was created by God to agree with your thoughts. And so if you have thoughts of life, life is going to happen inside your physical body. If you have thoughts of death, death is going to begin to manifest in your physical body through disease and sickness and illness. So when the enemy comes to accuse you, Holy Spirit's there with you to convict you of your righteousness and say, uh 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 uh, cover that lid. Don't mess with it. You are the righteousness of Christ. You are well-pleasing, a sweet aroma to God. Right now, you are seated in the heavenly realm. There's nothing left to do to be acceptable before God's sight. Amen? Amen. Let's just worship for a minute. Let's stand up. I want to pray for us. Father, we just, we just say we love you so much. Your ways are so good, so much higher than our ways. The way that you've been explaining your goodness for years and years and years, the way you've been pointing to people to fall in love with you for your covering over our sins, we just say thank you so much. Jesus, we acknowledge you as our righteousness. We acknowledge you as the one who paid for all of our sins and washed all our sins away, and we just thank you so much. Right now, we choose to eradicate judgment from our lives. We choose to agree with your thoughts and to eradicate condemnation from our lives. Right now, we make a resolve in our hearts that every time the devil rises up to accuse us and to come and prosecute us of how we could never be right in your sight, we say no in the name of Jesus. And we condemn the words coming against us. And we say we are the righteousness of Christ. 
No condemnation, no accusation, no judgment formed against us will prosper because we have already had our sins paid for. We have already been made clean. We have already been made righteous. And we take our right standing. We accept that gift of righteousness that's been given to us. And we choose not to look into the box any longer. And we choose to wholeheartedly accept and receive that gift that you've given us. We thank you, Lord.